Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 32 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Our big focus question of the day is, why is the parable of the sower the key to all of the other parables? Now, we're also going to be talking about books like Jesus Calling and apps like A Sprinkle of Jesus and asking the question, are those things dangerous? So happy February to you. We made it through one whole month of daily Bible reading and podcasting. Today, we're in Genesis chapter 33. Jacob finally meets Esau face to face. Will there be blood? We're also going to read Esther 9 and 10, although Esther 10 is one of the shorter chapters in the Bible. We're going to read Romans 4 and Romans 4 focuses on one of the key central doctrines of the Bible, like the key pillar doctrine of the Bible, really, which is justification by faith and not by works. And normally, that would be so important that it would be our focus passage of the day. But we, we're we going to keep focusing on justification by faith as we go through Romans. Today, our focus passage is actually going to be in Mark chapter 4, because that is where Jesus taught what I believe is the most important parable that of all of his parables. And I can make a small case for that, but it's the parable of the sower. I do want to give some shout outs. Our friend Dr. Og Keep went to our website, which is BibleReadingPodcast.com. That's BibleReadingPodcast.com. I would invite you to go there. Every episode we do has a matching article on the website with quotes and whatever you might have missed and any link we might have talked about, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And Dr. Keep commented there and said... It was odd that episode 28 was so controversial. The only part of it that left me confused was the part about Jesus bringing us concrete. And that's a nice play on words there, Dr. Keep. What happened was I entitled that episode, Reasons to Believe That Jesus Rose from the Dead That Are Rational and Concrete, or something like that. Um, and the way I worded it, it sounded like Jesus was bringing us concrete. Well, that's a bit silly, but... That episode, as Dr. Keat points out, is quite controversial because the Facebook post on it has something like 140 or more comments on it. And some of those are some uh, pretty angry atheists who don't like the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead or something along those lines. Well, we've had some interesting conversations discussing with them. I love atheists. They're not enemies. They are people who I want to interact with. So I don't consider that an annoyance or an aggravation at all. But an opportunity to share Jesus and to act like Jesus. So if you're a Christian and you uh, look askance at atheists, let me encourage you to not do that, but to treat them with the utmost gentility, even if they disagree with you harshly, and point them to the Word of God and Jesus. And if they reject it, love them anyway. Also want to give a shout out to our old friend Keith Helsey, who is himself a podcaster at the Life Truth. Dot com podcasting network. Now, the interesting thing about Keith is Keith is visually impaired, but he is a long, long time podcaster. His podcast, which you can find at life-truth.com, is up on episode number 250 or somewhere in that range. So, 
that is very heroic and awesome and amazing to have that kind of longevity. So good job, Keith, there. Uh, keep it going. May the Lord bless it. Before we get into the scriptural passage, I want to read you a little story. I got this from Brian Chappelle's book, Holiness by Grace, Delighting in the Joy that is Our Strength. And I'll just start it out. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of summer days, and instead she broke her own heart. She watched her children run to the playground as another car drove into the parking lot. The car ground to a quick stop, and a young, vibrant woman with a beaming smile leapt out of the driver's seat and virtually skipped to a secluded table near an adjoining lake. The imagination of the mother watching began to race. Who could this young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an over-busy husband? Was it a lunch date with a best friend? Or was it a tryst between secret lovers? The mother determined to stay on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car. But no one else came immediately, and the mother soon grew busy watching her children breaking up fights, cleaning up skin, knees, and all of that kind of good stuff. When she finally did glance up again at the secluded woman, what the woman saw made her heart skip a beat. The woman was actually reading a Bible and praying. The person she had leapt from her car to meet with with such enthusiasm was her Lord. The mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had that same kind of enthusiasm. Once the excitement of her own relationship with God had overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation had burned warm and bright, but now the fervor was gone. Faith had become a dreary duty. God had become a detached, frowning bystander. Something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. She didn't know exactly what it was, but she did know that she would not now skip to meet him. She had lost something wonderful, and she wept there in the park for her loss. Now, that's a pretty powerful and penetrating fable uh, or story or even parable for us. And I ask the question of you and me, where do we find ourselves in that? Are we still walking with passion and excitement towards the Word of God, or has it gotten stale and maybe been a long time for us? I think most Christians underappreciate, undervalue, and underestimate the power of the Word of God, myself included. One of the reasons why I'm doing a daily Word-focused podcast and post about it most days on social media is because I think that there's great power in God's Word, and doing this podcast on a daily basis actually helps hold my feet to that commitment. Now, the Word of God is not exactly like dynamite that you just casually toss around and tell it to people, and then the people hear it, and boom, they are instantly overnight transformed into mature followers of Jesus because the supernatural Word of God has so enlivened them. And now, now, that might happen sometimes, but generally speaking, the Word of God is much more organic than that. One of the main ways that Jesus taught about the power and impact of the Word is by commanding comparing it to a tiny little seed. A seed is small, and it's not terribly impressive at your first glance, but it can grow into a tremendous organic living thing. When Jesus taught the disciples 
about the power and impact of the word in his parable of the sower, they didn't actually get it at first, which prompted him to say, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? That one line says to me that the parable of the sower has within it a key to unlock all of the other parables. So let's give it a read. Mark chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen! Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased thirty, sixty, and a hundred times. Then he said, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive, they may indeed listen and yet not understand, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundred times what was sown. He also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed. Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he does have will be taken away from him. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that, when sown upon the soil, is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants, and produces large branches, so that the birds of the sky can rest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like this, as they were able to understand. 
He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the winds were waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care we're going to die?' He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, "'Silence, be still.' And the wind ceased." And there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the winds and the waves and the sea obey him. Oh my gosh, there's so much, so much in Mark chapter 4 to cover. And if it were up to me, we'd probably do 10 episodes on it, maybe even more. As a pastor, I I think that you could preach for months on that one section of scripture in Mark 4. It's so deep. But one of the great things it does for us is it points us to the power of the Word of God. I heard the testimony of a preacher I admired at one time, and his testimony was kind of a a one-in-a-million situation. He said, that he came to Jesus while he was smoking pot, and this was in college, he was smoking pot and listening to a person who had been saved for two weeks preach to him. He said that he read that night in the King James Version of the Bible a little while after that and made a bunch of notes, that, and, and he barely understood any of it, but he knew, and he underlined a lot of passages because he knew they were the words of eternal life. That night, he followed Jesus by faith, even though his mind was hazy from the pot and his understanding was low. Nevertheless, he was radically saved. Similarly, the writer Donald Whitney tells the story of a man in Kansas City that had just become a Christian when he got involved in some sort of terrible explosion at his work. He lost both of his hands. His face was disfigured. I believe he lost his hearing for a while, but he heard of a woman in England who read Braille with her lips, and uh, he couldn't see. I guess the, 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 the explosion blinded him. He couldn't see. He couldn't hear very well, and he had no hands to read, So, which is, I mean, such a tragic sort of thing. But And he tried to read the Braille of the Word of God, but his lips were too dead that close after the explosion. But as he was attempting this, on an off chance, his tongue happened to brush the braille on the page, and he found he could literally read the braille with his tongue. And Whitney says by the time that uh, he heard about that man, that one guy had read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue on Braille. Now, man, four times with his tongue on Braille. That's passion. That's understanding the power and the necessity of the word. I want to have that kind of heart that knows how much I need to daily 
Feast on the Word. So this podcast is an ongoing daily podcast, and we're going to encounter the parable of the sower six times over the next year. And I keep saying I don't want to make this podcast too long, and I keep trying to dial it back. So because this parable is so deep and meaningful, we're not going to really be able to go much beyond a few feet in depth today. And that's okay. We can gain a few powerful nuggets of truth and then know in the next few times that we encounter the parable of the sower, we're just going to go deeper and deeper. Consider this passage, Mark 4, 24 and 25, what we just read. Jesus says this, consider carefully what you hear with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And so what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the word of God. Listening to and absorbing the word is the critical focus here. The deeper the word of God goes in you, the more you listen, the more you meditate on it, the more you absorb, the greater the work of the kingdom is in your life. That's kind of what the the parable of the sower is all about. It's most people who hear the word, it doesn't bear fruit in their life. It grows up and it dies or the enemy comes and takes it or it gets choked out by the, the worries of life. But for some, it bears a crop 30, 60, or a hundredfold what was planted. The deeper it goes, the more fruitful it is. The shallower it goes, the less. Jesus says, with the measure you use to receive the word, that will be the measure of the power, transformation, encouragement, and fruitfulness of the word in your life. Think of it this way. If you come to the word with a tiny little cup and you only want just a little bit of it because you don't have time to spend, oh my gosh, I've got so much to do. I have no time to spend reading a whole chapter or a whole book of the Bible. So you just want to teensy little bitty tiny whiny little morsel well jesus is going to say you bring a tiny little bit to it you're only going to bring or get a tiny little bit out of it on the other hand you can bring a giant barrel into the acquisition of the word and you'll get tons of it so there's a direct correlation to the amount of fruitfulness in your life and your getting and hearing of the word of god so The person that might, I don't know, uh, look at the verse of the day app on his phone four days, four times a week, that person will be receiving an intake of the word, but only a tiny, tiny, tiny little amount, almost certainly not enough to live on. On the other hand, the person who changes her schedule and priorities to make time for the word of God, for real depth in the word, that person will receive from that an abundance. Now, one little bit of caution here, and really wrestle with this because it's worth considering, I think. Be sure you are listening to or reading the Word of God. A preacher's opinion, a pastor's sermon that's mostly devoid of Scripture, a best-selling Christian book, maybe one that tells you to wash your face and mentions God a little bit, but is mostly completely devoid of God's Word, a sprinkle of Jesus app, or the book Jesus Calling. These things are not the Word of God. Just because somebody talks about God does not mean that they are bringing the Word of God. The message of pastors and preachers must be soaked in God's Word and not just human 
feel-good aphorisms. The message of pastors have to be soaked in God's Word, based on God's Word, completely agree with God's Word, and be filled with God's Word to be of any use and power to you. Otherwise, you're just getting somebody's opinion. And you know what they say about opinions and how much they're worth. Jesus Calling, the best-selling quote, devotional book, is not God's Word, but it's rather the words of a modern writer who claims to listen to what God says to her and write it down, and therefore she's sort of speaking for God and speaks in the first person as God. That's a little bit alarming because she's not writing scripture, but when you read it, and if you don't know the difference, you you kind of think, well, I'm listening to God. This person is writing down the words of God. Well, are they really? The app, A Sprinkle of Jesus, is not the words of Jesus, but it's a counterfeit. It's meant to give you a shiver and a comforting feeling, but it contains pretty much 0% the word of God. Imagine being sick or having a deficiency of vitamin C or whatever, and to take care of that, you eat an orange candy every day to correct that deficiency. But the candy it might be orange, it might taste orangey, but most candies like that are completely devoid of any vitamins whatsoever, even though it's the right color and shape. Beware imitations. Imagine writing to your favorite sports star or celebrity and asking for an autograph. And this is what happens in that world. I used to collect autographs a little bit, so know a little bit about it. In most cases, the celebrity never reads your request. And what you get back in return is a glossy picture with a facsimile, which means fake, uh, printed on it by a printer or a machine or something, autograph on it that, that was, again, done by a machine or by their assistant. There's no value in it because the person you are interested in hasn't interacted with you in the least. Their assistant, or really even their assistant's assistant, or their assistant's assistant's virtual assistant has done all of this. Can we receive good things from modern preachers, pastors, and writers? I hope so. I believe so. I am myself a modern preacher, pastor, and writer. The danger comes when I, or really anybody else, tries to pass off my words as the word of God, or my opinion as God's opinion. I don't speak for God, and my words of teaching and my books and this podcast are only valuable when they adhere to God's word and are founded on God's word and point you to God's word. My opinion is worth about what it costs you, which hopefully you didn't pay anything for this podcast. It's worth much less than that. And it becomes a danger to your soul when I try to frame my opinion as the actual words of God. It's a dangerous and brazen thing for a writer or teacher to take their words and speak and write them as if they are the very words of God. That's dangerous. Yes, I believe in the New Testament gift of prophecy, but that is not saying, that is not speaking for God with the voice of God. That is an entirely different thing. So again, run from imitations. Let me give you an example, maybe a couple of examples. Jesus Calling, the book, uh, has a line in it that says, because I am your constant companion, the C there is capitalized, there should be a lightness to your set step that is observable to others. Now, again, this is speaking in the first person, speaking for God. She's saying this is what God is saying to everybody through her. 
Now, does that really line up with the Word of God? Does the Bible, does God say to us, hey, because I'm always with you, you should have a lightness to your step? I don't know. Does that really go along with something like, I don't know, John 16, 33, where Jesus says, you will have suffering in this world. Now, be courageous. I have conquered the world. But I think you might notice the difference between those two quotes. Jesus never calls his followers to something quite so superficial as a lightness in their step because he's not concerned with the superficial. He's not concerned with the surface. The Bible is much more realistic and grounded than that. Here's a couple of quotes from Sprinkle of Jesus. As I read them, ask yourself, does that sound like the Jesus of the Bible? I asked God, why are you taking me through troubled water? He replied, because your enemies can't swim. Well, that's clever. But is that really why God takes us through difficult times so that the people who are opposed to us will drown or leave us alone? Maybe sometimes, one in a hundred times, I don't even know. But imagine a person who's going through troubled times because God has ordained it, which that's how it happens. And maybe God has ordained it to produce perseverance in them or maturity or a deeper prayer life or to burn off some sin in their life. And they get this message on their phone, which says it's from God. And God is saying to them, oh, hey, you're going through this tough time because I'm after your enemies. I hope they drown. That's not biblical. That's just weird. Like one more example. In solitude, there is healing, says Sprinkle of Jesus, which is not Jesus. In solitude, there is healing. Speak to your soul. Listen to your heart. Sometimes in the absence of noise, we find the answers. I mean, that's not how Jesus talks. I'm not even sure that's how Buddha talks, but it's certainly not how Jesus talks. Imagine texting the person you love or, I don't know, a special friend if you're not in love with anybody. Imagine that that person you're in love with or your special friend, that their assistant or secretary or even a virtual assistant who is a thousand miles away from them, imagine that person answers you. Not the person you love, but some assistant that you've never met before. Imagine that assistant tells you something sweet and lovely and wonderful that they made up themselves. Now, That's nice and everything, but you haven't actually heard from the person you love, have you? Just a substitute. Imagine if, I don't know, say at the church, we have a secretary at the church. Imagine if I went to her and I said, Sherry, Valentine's Day is just around the corner. I'll tell you what I want you to do. I'd love for you to write a love letter to my wife and sign my name to it and seal it up and go buy a few chocolates and give it to her. What is that? Is that something special from me? Of course not. That's fake. It's an imitation. If that happened, and hopefully it won't (laughs) because I would die, but if that did happen, my wife would first of all know it wasn't me because my handwriting is atrocious and our secretary's handwriting is much better, but she would be like, what are you doing? This isn't special because it's not from you. Well, Words from somebody else who are claiming to be God, even if they come to you in the form of a best-selling Christian book or a sunny morning when your pastor is just giving some sort of opinion that's not based in the Word of God, or if it's an app called Sprinkle of Jesus, 
These things can be substitutes for God's word. Don't accept imitations. Don't accept substitutes. Go for the real thing. Go for the word of God. Dig in the word of God. You read it yourself. Yes, listen to your pastor. Yes, support your pastor. But make sure he's preaching from the word of God. But get the word of God for yourself from the word of God. And that will be a tremendous blessing to all godly pastors. And with that, speaking of the word, let's get into it. Genesis 33, verse 1. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it's like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Then Esau said, Let's move on, and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and the children, and until I come to you, my Lord, at Seir. Esau said, Let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, Why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Sukkoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver, and he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Esther chapter 9 verse 1. The king's command and law went into effect on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower him. them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who attended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them, and fear of them fell on every nationality." 
all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Pashadanta, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vazata. They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done, so a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It's a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pure, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pure. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to this time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Queen Esther 
daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to conform, confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. Romans chapter 4 verse 1. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who were not only circumcised, but also who follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. That is the word of the Lord, and what a beautiful truth it is that Abraham was saved by faith, not by what he did. He trusted in God's promise and God credited or reckoned that to him as righteousness. And so too, you, my friends, you can trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, what he has done for you on the cross. You can trust in what has been done for you and the promises of God. And in doing that, You can be saved by having God credit righteousness to your account. For as the Bible says, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can brag. May you trust Jesus today and be encouraged by his word. Amen and Godspeed.